It is really great to be with you and all our community expressions today. Our locations in the city and the suburbs of Chicago, uh, those of you who join us through Community Freedom, our 3C communities, and also our growing community online. Well, today we're going to talk about love and sex. Now, you might be thinking, what makes you an expert, Dave? Well, let me tell you. I remember when I was at about, wow, fourth or fifth grade, and my dad decided he needed to have the sex talk with me. And he's going to tell me about the birds and the bees. So he decided the best way to do it was to take me golfing. He thought that would be a good approach for a father and son. And that way, he'd have plenty of time and a few necessary distractions if things got awkward. So over the course of those 18 holes, he explained a few things and asked me if I had any questions. At the end of the round of the golf, he must have thought it went pretty well. Now, how do I know? Well, because when my younger brother, John, by two years, he got to be in about fourth or fifth grade, he decided he would do the same thing with him. He would take John golfing, and over the course of those 18 holes, he would have the talk. Well, somewhere on the fairway of the first hole, my dad starts the conversation and says, uh, John, you got any questions about sex? There was a slight pause. And then John looks at my dad and says, not really, but if I do, I'll just ask Dave. <laughs> so according to my younger brother, you are getting this talk from a sex and love expert. All right, to start with, there is so much about sex and love that our culture has really twisted, distorted, and is just very confused about. For example, do you, know, do you know who holds the record for being married the most times? In fact, I'll tell you what, turn to someone near you right now and tell them your number. Most number of times married. Or if you're watching online, just go ahead and type it in the chat. What do you think is the most times anybody's ever been married? Do that right now. Now, if you're thinking about, um, let's say, King Henry VIII, who was married six times. Not even close to the record. If you were thinking about old-time movie star Elizabeth Taylor, who was married eight times, still not the record. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the gold medal goes to a guy by the name of Glenn Scotty Wolf. He was married 29 times. Now, some of his marriages ended after just days. Others lasted several years. But what was it that created this craving for love inside of him. Well, those who've studied Wolf from a psychological perspective noticed he would repeatedly have four experiences. <laughs> One, he would fall in love. Two, he would make a commitment. Three, soon after, he would start to feel remorse and then regret that commitment. And then fourth, he would start looking for love somewhere else. And he did that 29 times. When Wolf died, he had 40 children. He actually had a tied knot, a tied knot tattoo on his forearm. And even though many of his ex-spouses were still alive, his lifeless body laid unclaimed for months in a county morgue. Okay, we start there. Because the mistake Glenn Wolf made at least 29 times, and I'm not just talking about divorce, was misunderstanding God's intention for love and sex. So here's the deal. If you've never found love the way our culture advertises it, and if your sex life is not living up to the hype that society has marketed, and if it just feels like your relationships, they ought to be more. What we're going to discover in God's word today 
I'm telling you, it's going to be a big, big help to you. Now, we're not. We're not going to cover everything. But what we will do is lay a foundation for the basics according to the Bible. Now, we're in this great series called Becoming Like Jesus. And we're also coming in the last week of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. So let me encourage you, stay strong for all 21 days. What God is doing, he's forming Christ in you through this fast. And our simple objective for these 21 days and this series is just to become more like Jesus. Okay, you ready? Well, here we go. If you do just a little research on love and sex, there are some brutal facts that show that people who identify as Christians are basically indistinguishable from those who call themselves non-Christians. In fact, in a recent study of single Christians, they asked, would you have sex before marriage? 63% said, yes, despite what the Bible teaches. When it comes to pornography, there's virtually no difference in the use of pornography by both Christians and non-Christians. And it's also true for both men and women. And the percentage of married men and women who have affairs it's almost identical between those who call themselves Christians and those who say, no, I'm not a Christian. When I download all this, I'll tell you, I think it's a clarion call that reminds us that too many of us who have claimed the name Christian are committed to the external activities of Christianity, the, the doing the things and saying the things without being deeply transformed by Christ. And as Rich Velotas tells us, instead of being deeply formed, we settle for being shallowly shaped. All right, so what does it look like to be deeply formed like Jesus? And when it comes to love and sex, what does Jesus have to teach us? Well, first, no one flourished as a human being more than Jesus. All right, full stop. John, one of Jesus' closest friends and the author of the fourth gospel, says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We sometimes say that a person kind of lights up a room. Well, Jesus not only lit up a room, but he lights up the whole universe. I mean, when he walked among us, people could instantly just tell there was something different about him. Jesus was fully alive. Jesus is our ultimate picture of human flourishing. And yet, consider this. Jesus was single, and Jesus was celibate. What? single and celibate. Now, now, some of you are ready to tune me out right now. And you're thinking, if becoming like Jesus means that, I'm out of here. <laughs> hear me out. Hear me out on this. The fact that Jesus was celibate doesn't mean that celibacy is required for human flourishing, but it does mean that human flourishing is not dependent on the act of sex. Now, just in case you're thinking, well, but Jesus is God. He's not like me. Let me remind you what the writer of Hebrews says. It says that Jesus became like us, fully human in every way. And that means he has hormones like we have hormones. He had the same desires that we have. He has the same temptations we have. And yet Jesus remained single and he remained celibate. And then also there was the apostle Paul, arguably Paul, the most influential Christian leader aside from Jesus. He also lived a celibate life. He even recommended it as a preferred state for followers of Jesus. He told the church in Corinth, I wish all of you were as I am. He encouraged those who were unmarried or widowed to stay unmarried. And as a quick aside to all this, let me just say, I think too often in the church, we have completely ignored this. Too often, we, we buy into this cultural narrative that says, in order for you to flourish, you have to find that special someone. You have to find your soulmate. 
But Jesus was single, and he is our ultimate example of human flourishing. But you also have God, in the very beginning, designing the world exactly the way he wanted it, with a couple, Adam and Eve. And it says that God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Adam and Eve, in a perfect relationship, in a perfect world, is God's perfect design for how he dreamed the world would be. So we have Adam and Eve, a couple, as God's original design for the created order, and we have Jesus, our best example of human flourishing, who is single and celibate. So what does this have to say about love and sex? I mean, how can those both be? Here's, here's the deal. I believe it's because God's intention for our sexuality is far different than many of us think. In fact, to understand his intention, let's go all the way back to the very beginning. When God created human beings in Genesis 1, he created us as sexual beings. But our sexuality, it involves much more than just the act of sex. Deb Hirsch, author of a fantastic book called Redeeming Sex, explains it this way. She says, sexuality, right, can be described as this deep desire and longing that drives us beyond our souls in an attempt to connect with and to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people on, on physical, emotional, and spiritual levels. See, we were, you and I were created with a longing for connection, a longing for fellowship, a longing for belonging, because we were created in the image of God. If we go back to Genesis 1, we read, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God created them, male and female, he created them. Now, we've hit this before, but I'll hit it again. Notice this, God says, let us make mankind in our image. These pronouns describing God are both plural. Why? Because God has existed from the beginning of time in community with himself. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The three existed and flourished in community. And so God creates us in his image, and likewise, we flourish together in community, in connection, when we find belonging with each other. Theologian Marva Dawn puts this out. She says, human beings are especially created to image God. And a significant part of that imaging is fellowship, our relationship with each other. We model the community of the Trinity. Now, here's what I want you to wrestle with, okay? Tune in, here's what I want you to wrestle with. Our sexuality is not centered on the act of sex. Our sexuality is actually centered on connection. It's centered on belonging. It's actually centered on being in community with one another. The act of sex, yes, it's a part of our sexuality, a part of how we connect, but it's not the whole of it. Now, now let me remind you of something that we all know is true. It's entirely possible to engage in the act of sex and actually feel less connected and feel less flourishing. Let me just talk plainly. Some of us know what it's like to have a one-nighter and you wake up the next morning feeling no connection at all and as a person less flourishing. Some of us have marriages right now where our sex lives, I mean, 
it's just mechanical. They're really, it's not bringing any connection. And I want to be careful here, but some of us have had sex acts committed against us and it hurt our entire being profoundly. So yes, sexuality is a gift from God, but the act of sex is only a part of that gift. Now, however, in God's goodness, he did include a dimension to our sexuality, which is the act of sexual intercourse. In Genesis 2, God establishes a place where the act of sex can be best enjoyed between a man and a woman. It says, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He'd take it out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It's through the act of sex, by God's intention, we experience connection with our entire bodies to that person. The two become one flesh. But the author of Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex tells us, sex is not about genitalia, it's about relationship. When God says the two will become one flesh, he didn't mean only physically. So, sex is not just about our bodies kind of colliding with one another. It's actually an act of commitment, an act of self-giving, an expression of covenant between two people. And, and this is so powerful that it requires the nurturing safeguard found in the commitment of marriage. Well, Jesus reinforced this view of God's design for sex when he quotes from this exact same text from back in Genesis 2. So what we see in Genesis 2, we see intentionally repeated by Jesus. Why does he repeat it? Because he wants us to understand where this type of connection, the act of sex, could best be enjoyed. When we come to this kind of broader understanding of our sexuality and God's intention for the act of sex to be within marriage, it's then we're ready to grasp several realities that can help us flourish and become like Jesus. So what I want to give you are three realities. Reality number one. Sexual wholeness comes from intentional community with others. We could say that another way. Sexual wholeness does not require the act of sexual intercourse. And I, I know this is still so, so out there for some of us, and here's why. I think it's because we've become enculturated our whole lives in a society that worships the act of sex. And I want to keep it real. I mean, I'm married. I like sex a lot. But for many of us, sex has become like a god. It's an idol. It's an addiction. And here's the deal. If Jesus is our model, our ultimate example of human flourishing, the one we follow, then we have to admit that Jesus was sexually whole and that we can learn sexual wholeness from him. See, see Jesus flourished because he lived in deep community with his friends, men and women. He had the 12 disciples who were his good friends. He had this inner circle of, of best friends, Peter, James, and John. He formed deep friendships with women like Mary and Martha who often welcomed him into their home. He experienced community. So remember, our sexuality is that deep desire and God-given longing that drives us to connect with others. And Jesus experienced that, and he was whole. This broader understanding of our sexuality, I think something that we all need to hear. Young people need to hear, single people need to hear, married people need to hear, all of us need to hear. The 40 to 50% of the population that is single, you need to hear, you can be whole without the act of sex. Wholeness is found in experiencing connection, belonging, and in community with other people. And celibacy 
it's not only possible, but it could be desirable just like it was for Jesus. Now, for married people, we need meaningful relationships even beyond the relationship with our spouse. I, I want to read you an excerpt from Christopher West's book, Fill These Hearts. He describes a simple discovery that, uh, that, that changed his marriage. Here, here's, here's what he has to say. He says, years ago, my wife and I were out to dinner, and she observed that something was different about our marriage in recent years, something good. She asked me if I had any insight into what it was. After reflecting a bit, I said with a smile, yeah, I think I know what it is. I think I've been realizing deep in my heart that you can't satisfy me. She got a big grin on her face and said, yeah, that's it. And I've been realizing the same thing about you. You can't satisfy me either. I imagine anyone overhearing us in the restaurant would have thought we were about to get divorced. But to us, that realization was the cause for joy and celebration. We had never felt closer and freer in our love. He goes on, I love my wife more than words can express, and I know she loves me, but I can't possibly be her ultimate satisfaction and she can't be mine. And that's why our conversation at the restaurant was cause for rejoicing. I want you to get this, okay, for all of us. Single people, married people, wholeness is found in experiencing connection, belonging, fellowship in a community of people. And for those of us who are married, we need to intentionally practice hospitality, open up our families, open our homes to others, including single people, so we all can find this wholeness together. All right, reality number two. Reality number two is this. The act of sex is a gift designed for marriage between a man and a woman. So while the act of sex is not necessary for sexual wholeness, it is a part of our sexuality, and it's a great gift that God gave to us. So just in case some of you are thinking that we're downplaying the act of sex and saying, ah, oh, it's not that great. No, no, no. It's a gift that God gave to us to enjoy. And by a gift, its very nature is something that's, it, it's, it's, it's not necessary. It's something special. So yes, having sex is a gift from God and he wants us to enjoy it. And as we've already seen, this intention is laid out in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and then reinforced later on in Jesus' own teaching. God's intention for the act of sex is enjoyed between a man and a woman and reserved for marriage. And God gave us this gift with this intention because he knows that the act of sex outside of marriage, it can be a destructive force. In fact, I'll tell you what, do your own research on this. But secular study after secular study shows that the divorce rate is significantly higher for people who live together before getting married. And this is another one of those examples of people, they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, but, but this just feels right. Or how could it be wrong that it feels so good to us? And I hear you, but I'll tell you what, I've had enough experience that I trust God's truth. I trust God's truth over my feelings and your feelings every time. So reality number one is that sexual wholeness comes from intentional community with others. Reality number two is that the act of sex is a gift designed for marriage between a man and a woman. Then reality number three, sexual wholeness requires trusting God and following his design. It was G.K. Chesterton who famously said, the man who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so 
seeking God. He's saying someone who hires a prostitute, what they're really looking for is God. See, sexual wholeness does mean giving yourself to others, but first, it means giving yourself to God. Our deepest longings will only be found in God and in following his wisdom for human flourishing. If we want to be sexually whole, we need to let God free us from culture's idolatry of sex. I want to go back again to Christopher West's book, and here's what he says. Only to the degree that we are free from idolizing, human beings are we also free to take our ache for perfect fulfillment to the one who alone can satisfy it. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. See, that was Glenn Wolf's mistake. That's why he went through 29 wives. He kept thinking he was going to find what was missing in this other person or another sexual partner. No, what he was missing was God. And if we want to be whole, we have to trust God and follow his design. We've covered a lot of ground in this talk. And we're learning so many things, both from Jesus and scripture, that are totally contrary to what culture is teaching us that our sexuality includes so much more than the act of sex, but that the act of sex, it is a good gift from God. That singleness and celibacy are real God-given options for how to live a full life. And Jesus is our example. And that we all need connection with God and with the community of others to be whole. I'll tell you, I want you, to, I want you to wrestle with this. Wrestle with this stuff. Do, do me a favor, search the Bible. Keep, keep following Jesus. Do not trust what culture is teaching you. And here's the other thing. Do not trust just your own longings, your own feelings. That, that'll get, get us all in trouble. This here, right here, this book, the Bible, this is your truth source. And Jesus is our example. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to say thank you that you created us in your image, that you created us with a longing for connection, a longing for community, a longing for belonging. Lord, I also want to say thank you for the good gift of just the act of sex. Lord, I ask that you help us to never confuse the two, to help us move forward to people who completely trust you with our whole selves, knowing that you are the one that can make us whole. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.